Sometimes we make decisions that take us down a path we don't anticipate. That's what happened to me back in 2021. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I'm the managing producer of podcasts at Canada's National Observer. That spring of 2021, I came across a story about a biologist in a remote corner of British Columbia fighting for wild salmon. The article was an excerpt from her about-to-be-published book, Not On My Watch. I bought the book, and when I turned the book's final page, I knew this story needed to be a podcast. But it took months to gather the documents, track people down, and travel to BC to talk to people. And as we know, time is money. We need your support to create more podcasts like The Salmon People. The easiest way to support us is to purchase a one-year subscription. Another powerful way to support our podcasts is to make a direct donation. Go to nationalobserver.com forward slash donate to make your contribution. Hi there, and welcome to Maxed Out. My name is Max Fawcett. I'm the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer, and while season one has ended, I'll be back in the fall with season two. In the meantime, here's an episode from season one that swayed my stance the most. This podcast, as you probably know by now, is about having constructive conversations about public policy issues with people I might or do disagree with. I want to step outside my silos, and I want to encourage other people to step outside of theirs. Today is episode 13, The Nuclear Revolution. Nuclear energy is back in vogue right now, in large part because of the growing global consensus around the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and the understanding that nuclear can do some heavy lifting on that front. Perhaps the most striking example comes from California, where the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, once the bane of environmentalists there and the target of repeated protests, is now being fought for by, yes, environmentalists. Governor Gavin Newsom, who once opposed the plant, was forced to reconsider his position after the 2020 heat wave caused rolling blackouts in his state. Now he's pushing to extend its life past its scheduled 2025 closure and he has the growing support of a public that once opposed new nuclear in their state. Its critics, on the other hand, insist that nuclear is too expensive to operate, too slow to build, and too dangerous to consider, given the enormous risks associated with its failure. And while I don't count myself among its critics, I do have some concerns that it's being used in some quarters to either slow roll climate policy or undermine support for renewables like wind and solar. We'll get down to brass tacks on all that stuff in a minute. What I like about this issue is that it confounds conventional partisan labels and left-right sorting and scatters people on either side of a debate who might not otherwise share space. There are a lot of right-wing pro-fossil fuel types who support nuclear, but there are also a lot of progressive backers of nuclear as well, who see any downsides as manageable given its potential to displace large swaths of coal and fossil gas energy. And as it happens, it was one of those people a gentleman named Ryan Painter, who was a communications specialist and the former chair of the Greater Victoria School Board, who suggested I talk to today's guest. That guest is none other than Zeon Lights, a British climate activist and writer who has, among other things, been the spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion in the UK. That's an environmental movement that uses civil disobedience to force government action on climate change. She also wrote a book called The Ultimate Guide to Green Parenting, 
which has been described as having turned the hippy-diffy image of a green mama on its head with its common sense and evidence-based facts. More recently, Xeon left Extinction Rebellion to start Emergency Reactor, an organization in support of nuclear energy. And while that might sound like it's in opposition to her previous environmental activities, she doesn't see it that way. Me? I remain mostly agnostic here. I think we need to be open to any pathway that can help us reach our emissions reduction goals, and I think existing nuclear should be maintained and sustained wherever possible. Either way, it should be a very interesting conversation. So, Xeon, welcome to Maxed Out. Thank you so much. That was a fantastic introduction. Very comprehensive. Well, thank you. And I want to say this is our first uh, transatlantic episode of the podcast, so I'm very excited to be talking to someone in a different part of the world, different time zone, all that fun stuff. Before we get into the, the sort of meat of the argument here, I want to ask kind of a silly question first. How much damage do you think the Simpsons did to the cause of nuclear energy over the last few decades? Significant damage. And I have to say that when I was on the other side and I was protesting against nuclear energy, unfortunately, my idea of what nuclear was did come from the Simpsons. I know that sounds ridiculous. You know, I had never had contact with anybody that worked in nuclear. I'd never seen a power station in real life. And I grew up watching The Simpsons. We adored The Simpsons. And the biggest, most evil character is this nuclear industry head. And you've got Homer Simpson dropping waste everywhere. And the waste is green and gloopy. And I, I truly believed, you know, that's what the waste was. So I think, you know, I was just an ordinary person born to working class parents. And I think that is the messaging quite a lot of people, you know, who, who didn't have a high kind of science background with, with people in their family who might be able to combat some of these beliefs. And I think, yeah, that people like me really absorbed that messaging. I don't know whether it was deliberate or not, but it was certainly very powerful. So tell me about your transition from being someone who opposed nuclear and believed that it was, you know, not a viable solution to decarbonizing the global economy to being a, a very outspoken advocate. How did that happen for you? I was opposed for a long time. And, you know, for me, I was very young when I, I became concerned about global warming, which is what we called it back then. And I just wanted to do my bit. I wanted to help. So I went immediately to, you know, what were my local groups? There were Friends of the Earth. There was Greenpeace. Now, all these groups were anti-nuclear. It was just sort of, back then it wasn't questioned. It was just the standard. So I just went along with it. And over time, you hear stories about three-eyed fish. And again, I know it sounds ridiculous, but you hear all these awful stories coming from these organizations. And I would add that a lot of them are not doing this deliberately to mislead people about nuclear. They themselves have been misled. Like it goes all the way back to the the beginning of this, the founding of these environmental movements where nuclear got put in the wrong category. It got put in, this is bad. It took a long, long time to unpick all of that. My turning point came from being in the Green Party here in the UK, um, where as an active member, you know, they asked me to stand as a councillor. I was very active and I went to a debate on energy. I tried to ask a question about nuclear and I genuinely was not pro-nuclear. They had a scientist there from the Met Office who had been talking about energy and he'd sort of touched on it. And I thought, oh, hang on, is he pro-nuclear? You know, maybe I should hear this opinion. I was just, I just wanted to hear what he had to say. And when I put my hand up and asked the question, the host said... Uh, we're not, we don't need to answer that question. We know nuclear is bad. And it, it just sort of sent these alarm bells ringing in my head where I thought, wait a minute, why wasn't he allowed to answer the question? So I waited for the event to end and I ran off to him. I caught up with him and I said, will you answer my question? And he said, of course we need it in the mix. Of course we need it to decarbonize. And this was like 2010. Now I'm having a huge existential crisis 
am I wrong? At that time, I was working in vaccine communication, so I was dispelling misinformation around vaccinations. So I started reading everything I could about it and, you know, studies and data. And, and I also had got, at this point, gone back to university and I did a master's in science communication. So now I had some training as well. And I realized how deeply I'd been deceived. You know, here in Canada, especially here in Western Canada, we, we don't talk about nuclear a lot because, you know, in BC, we have lots of hydro. Canada's grid is pretty clean already. We do have, you know, nuclear in Ontario, but it hasn't really risen to the top of our, or anywhere close to the top of our conversation. It's really been more about oil and gas. But in Europe, you know, obviously with Germany, and it's, I think, what I would describe as a, a catastrophic decision to abandon nuclear for reasons that, you know, I think reflect their politics and, and their proximity perhaps to Chernobyl and things like that. You know, I think that the net effect has been pretty bad. It, it definitely is higher on agenda and higher on the sort of level of public awareness for everyone. Can you talk about the German situation, you know, the choices they've made and, and maybe what that says about our attitudes towards nuclear? Sure. The thing you have to realize about Europe is we don't have a lot of capacity for hydropower. Like it's not an option here. So then if you look at, especially somewhere like Britain, where we also don't have a lot of land, you need something like nuclear that has a really small land footprint. I'm for all clean energy. Like for me, I've spent my life battling fossil fuels. I was arrested 10 years ago, protesting at coal-fired power station here. I was, you know, I was arrested multiple times. So for me, I, I, I still am a want to phase out fossil fuels, but I've shifted towards, well, how do I advocate for the clean options instead, which actually I think has been more impactful than what I was doing before. There are really strong arguments for nuclear and there are also still a lot of what I would call legacy fears from an old generation who grew up under the fear of like nuclear war. But the problem is that they've kind of passed that fear down to younger generations. And actually for me, the greater fear is climate change. I want a habitable planet for my children. Like, that's what I want. And for them, they still have this fear of, like, there'll be an explosion, it'll be like a war, and, you know, there'll be lots of death. And that's all misinformation. Now, Germany did have more of that than other countries. That's what I would say, especially in Europe. It's been taught in schools that way. There have been lots of popular books about nuclear going bad. It's pop culture. So everybody's grown up reading them. So we just had The Simpsons, but they've had books. They've had a strong movement. They've had a very active Greenpeace and other organizations there. All of this over the years has culminated in this very negative view of nuclear, where a lot of, I saw a lot of anger online, people saying, what's wrong with Germans? Why are they shutting down the plants? German people are great, guys. The, the, the polls show that 59% of German people wanted the nuclear power stations to stay open. And this is when they did grow up with all this fear-mongering, misinformation. They have still done what I did and gone, wait, maybe I'm wrong. And that's a hard thing to do, so let's respect that. But the problem is they have a Green Party in power. One of their core policies is against nuclear. So they continued with the phase-out despite so much of the population. This is not the fault of the population. This is just the fault of politics. And that happens all over the world on multiple different issues because you've often got uh, politicians that are just not very science literate. One of my less attractive instincts is I like to blame baby boomers for a lot of things. And, and I know baby boomers are, are great on the individual level. I've, I know lots of them. I mean, my parents are boomers, so how can I complain? But I am tempted to sort of draw that conclusion here that there's a sort of generational politics at play here where, you know, the boomers who grew up with these fears 
are kind of using that lens to apply it to their opposition of nuclear, especially when it comes to green parties in Europe and in the UK. From your perspective, how much of it is generational and how much of it is people just not wanting to admit that they're wrong or change their mind on something that they had previously held such strong views about? I mean, I think it's a bit of both. Look, in my experience, when I changed my mind publicly on nuclear, I have never had such outpouring of respect. Like, actually, people really value this. So we have this misconception that, oh, they'll see you as a flip-flop or whatever, you know, offensive term you can think of. But actually, that was not my experience. My experience was, we all want to hear a story. This is really a reasonable thing to do. We respect this. And I wish more politicians realised that. Instead of thinking, well, we've made this decision now. We have to we have to dig our heels in. And you even had Schultz, who replaced Merkel, saying, we have made mistakes with energy. And it almost looked like he could. But obviously, it's not just about his decision. It's the entire party. And there is one Green Party in the world, the Finnish Green Party, who openly stated that they are now pro-nuclear. They've changed their position. And I'm really hoping that has some kind of domino effect. But in the meantime, we're in an energy crisis and we've got the absolute worst people at the helm. You need some kind of evidence-driven decision-making here. And instead, you've got people who are afraid and just very deeply rooted in in ideology who have made those decisions. And the consequence of that is the carbon emissions going up, uh, slowing the fight against climate change, not only that, but, you know, air pollution, deaths from air pollution, the numbers have been crunched on this. Thousands of people are going to die because they've replaced that nuclear generation with coal. And lastly, something no one ever seems to think about, which is the workers. I mean, you go into this industry, people will have years of experience. You know, they love these jobs. They're good jobs. They're unionized jobs. They have put bread and butter on the table for their families for generations. They have often had to have years of education and training. And those jobs, gone. Just like that. What are they going to do now for work? And why doesn't anybody care? It's a very compelling critique. It's certainly more compelling to me than the argument for nuclear that comes from the right, uh, which doesn't seem to take much stock of the workers or the interests that they have and the kind of jobs that these facilities can create. Uh, We'll get into more into the politics in a second. I just want to give you a chance, though, to talk about the economics here for a second, because I think that's important. Wind and solar keep getting cheaper. Nuclear remains pretty darn expensive. Why don't we just build a whole pile of wind and solar? And you've taken issue with those calculations. So I want you to explain to listeners why it is not as cut and dried as maybe some folks, including me, have pretended in the past. This is where it's going to sound silly now that people claim that wind and solar power is cheaper. So first of all, one wind turbine or one solar panel is cheaper than a nuclear power plant. But do you think that's a fair comparison? Because actually, that is the comparison that people are making when they make those arguments. What you have to look at is how much do these solar panels cost to match the generation, the output of energy from the equivalent nuclear power station? And then you have to add to that that you cannot even make that comparison because you will need to add the backup power for the wind and solar for when it isn't windy and rainy. You have to add in fossil fuel backup. So for example, in Germany, it's not windy or sunny enough and they, they can only store so much in the battery storage isn't, isn't amazing still for wind and solar. Then they have to rely on fossil fuels. What that means is even on days when it's really sunny and they still have to keep the coal fire power stations running. A lot of people don't realize this, that they have to stay running. They have to be ready to generate like at a moment's notice so that there aren't blackouts. Because if you look at capacity factor, so in Britain, this is about 10% for solar. So that means all the rest needs to come from somewhere else. 
the world average solar natural capacity factor is between 11 and 13 percent now even in really sunny countries like california australia south africa they can get to about 25 percent capacity factor but that is the most so doesn't matter if you build a million solar panels you can't increase that number the only way you can increase try and increase it is to create huge batteries these are really really expensive when you really add them up i'm not going to say wind and solar are more expensive what i would say is they come out about equal but the other thing about wind turbines and solar panels you do have to replace them around 20 to 25 years whereas how long have these nuclear power plants been generating unless they shut down prematurely 60 years sometimes they can be extended and go on even longer than that uh, especially the newer ones zoom out and look at all of the variables that aren't taken into account when people compare the cost one-on-one of one panel one turbine with one power plant like you cannot make that comparison people say don't build nuclear because it's expensive i'm kind of like well how much do you value life these power plants run for a long time and the reason they end up costing a lot of money is because they provide good well-paid union jobs and i support that i think you cannot talk about these environmental causes and not bring in the social justice aspect you won't bring people along with these tra- the transition um to clean energy or whatever, or whatever changes we need to make if you don't make sure that those people are looked after i agree and and there's a, a few things i want to sort of dig into here as to the social justice aspect i love economists but i think we've listened a little too much to the economists and not quite enough to the political scientists or the political theorists so you know we have a carbon tax here that's great it, it's the most efficient way to reduce emissions but the political economy of it is not good and there are a lot of people who feel like they're being left behind singled out certainly here in alberta I think that has been the success of, of what the Biden administration has done in the in the states is they've packaged climate policy as a jobs policy, as an economic development policy. And I think on that front, it's been much more successful than what we've done here in Canada. My concern, though, and this is, is that it sometimes just feels like a way to chop down renewables. It, but I can imagine someone who is a fossil fuel enthusiast or a lobbyist or an oil and gas sector comms person looking at that and going, well, isn't that a really good stick that we can use to beat renewables over the head with? What I hear from you is that zero carbon energy is better than high carbon energy and they should work in tandem. Absolutely. Absolutely. And nuclear and renewables can work together and they do in many countries. France, Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, Paraguay. These are the countries in the world with large electrical grids and the lowest carbon emissions. It's been done already. You know, why are we dragging our feet? Part of the reason is because you've got these two factions fighting. You've got the renewables people fighting with the nuclear people. And I'm like, guys, there is a huge common enemy over here. If you look at the scientific consensus of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they're the international body that tells us what's happening with climate change. They say we need to build a lot of renewables and a lot of nuclear. That is the only way to decarbonize. And it's the only way it's been achieved anywhere. And I think it's completely doable. And it has been done in places like France. And we should all follow that model. Do you worry about the support coming from the sort of fossil fuel industrial complex? I'm thinking of a guy named Alex Epstein, who wrote a ridiculous book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And he's a big nuclear advocate, apparently thinks it's a fantastic technology. And, you know, from where I sit, it feels to me like that kind of support is because they see it as a way to to slow down the sort of broader push to reduce and eliminate fossil fuels because they'll get... The renewables people arguing with the nuclear people and that'll throw sand in the gears. So like, do you just sort of ignore people like that who are supporting nuclear and and just push forward? I understand his argument. I think some of the right wing arguments come from this fear that like, if we get rid of fossil fuels, do I have to give up all my things? 
And actually, no, let's be fair. This isn't just a right wing thing. I've heard ordinary people talk about this. They're worried about diesel being phased out because they have a diesel car and they can't afford an EV, things like that. So there's this fear that they're taking away what we're used to. And that's that's a natural fear of change, I think. But it has also been capitalized on by fossil fuel industry. If you actually go far back to the 70s, the fossil fuel industry put lots of money into anti-nuclear campaigns. There's evidence of this with posters they put out in the US making them look like they're from environmental organizations, but actually they were traced back to, who was it, the American Petroleum Institute? And they're basically saying nuclear will take your job. We don't want nuclear here. So their number one interest is what what do we need to do where to protect fossil fuels? What I would say is we do need to understand the arguments from the other world or we do need to talk to them. And so actually I would agree with Alex on some of what he says about fossil fuels, where he says, look, could we stop just saying they're bad? Because they enabled us to leave, like leave poverty but I do think that the main thing is to have conversations with these people and not just write them off as like oh they're just selfish and they have their own reasons everybody has their own viewpoint and everybody's viewpoint is valid you're you're very pro-nuclear and that's why you wanted me to speak here and you know that I'm lefty but you invited me anyway so thanks for that that's a fair point I mean that's the, sort of the genesis of this podcast was talking to people that I don't automatically agree with and you know seems to me that one of the really big challenges here is that nuclear takes especially in you know, the United States takes a long time and we don't have that time, obviously. We're we're not running out of time. We just don't have any left. And how do you match up the time scale of needing to get nuclear built right away and the amount of time that it seems to take to move it through the regulatory process and all of that? This is another thing where there's some misconceptions. So nuclear reactors can be built in four or five years. Like the average build time is actually 7.5 years. All we really need is politicians that look at countries like South Korea where they started their nuclear program fresh. They didn't have one already. So they did, you know, they started from scratch. We're going to just put the same workforce on it again and again and build it basically like a Lego set. Because what happens is then the workers get so used to the way it's built the first time. The next time you already know where the piece, which pieces you need. This is what they do. They just churn them out, the same workforce. And they, they each time they brought the cost down and the build time down. And it's called the standardization model. And then you can look at countries like Britain, where it's slow and it's laborious. And it's like, why does it take so long? You have a pro-nuclear country here, both parties, left and right are pro-nuclear. We can't freaking build the things. And part of that is not respecting workers, not making sure that we have enough workers. So the workers issue, someone goes off sick, there is no one to replace them because we have not trained enough people. We've got a retiring workforce because a lot of the old reactors are old and they're retiring. We need to treat this like a war effort. and free apprenticeships if you want to go into this. The other thing is regulation. So it's a hard argument to make that you need to deregulate nuclear. But the fact is, it's so overly regulated because they wanted to make it so ridiculously safe. But it's so over the top that if they run out of a certain kind of nail or duct tape, they can only use that one brand that is signed off. And so if it's out of supply or they need to wait for it to be ordered, they just need to wait. It's that ridiculous. Then you look up fossil fuel industry and it is not regulated to that degree the waste isn't regulated to that degree right it's dumped all kind of places we found coal ash dumped in rivers nuclear waste they overmanage so incredibly these are massive protective containers for a tiny bit of waste and they're tested by flying planes into them the planes crash and the spent fuel canisters don't even crack like there are actual videos of this and i i think this is where nuclear gets stuck because it is really hard to argue to deregulate and now you suddenly have most countries have shifted, like the polls have dramatically shifted in favor. So I think maybe now is the time that people who really get it 
need to actually go and help with the decision-making process. It does feel like it's changing. It does feel like there's sort of a new openness, at least in certain parts of the world, to building nuclear and casting aside some of the old myths about it. You've definitely changed my position a little bit. I'm more supportive than I was when we started this conversation. I think you're a very compelling advocate for it. And I look forward to watching the conversation unfold as we go forward and your participation in it. So thank you. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me here today and joining me from across the pond. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really, really um, enjoyable. As it turns out, I'm not the only one who's reevaluating their position on nuclear energy. Just a few days after we recorded this interview with Xeon, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau came out with a full-throated embrace of nuclear energy. I mean, as we look at what the baseload energy requirements are going to be needed by Canada over the coming decades, especially as we continue to draw in global giants like Volkswagen who choose Canada partially because we have a clean energy mix to offer to power it, we're going to need a lot more energy and we're going to have to be doing much more nuclear. That's the first time he's come out that strongly in favor of nuclear energy. And it makes a lot of sense to me. It adheres to one of my longest standing and most closely held beliefs, which is that perfect is the enemy of good. That's especially true, I think, on climate change and climate policy. That's because there's no one perfect technology or answer or solution. All of them, including nuclear and renewables, have their trade-offs. And we need to pile as many imperfect solutions as we can on top of another if we're going to make the progress we need to see. That will mean forging alliances with people we may not otherwise agree with. That will mean making compromises and accepting trade-offs we may not like. And that will mean opening our minds to ideas we may have previously closed them to. But all of that is in the service of a very important objective. And the alternative, I think we can all agree, is much, much worse. Just a reminder that we need your help to continue our podcasts. Every donation helps. And please rate us a five on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends and neighbors. We want everyone to find us. Maxed Out is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Tozema. Our publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. Next week is Hot Politics with David Mackay. And I'm Max Fawcett. I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>